This morning we're reading from Exodus 15, verses 17 through 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. <clears throat> Kim, thanks for doing that. Troy, thanks for being vulnerable with us. And uh, yeah, it's good to hear that. Be reminded that God's doing something cool. Plus, Kim, first interview, dropping a zinger, I'd push back because wherever you are, the church is. Okay, Kim, I see what you're doing. Um, I'm going to jump in. Uh, we, our time is limited because of the way these sum, Sundays operate. So I'm going to pray for um, our time in the Word specifically and instruction and teaching. Uh, all the while, I'm going to pray for Horizons Church, which is right next door to us. Some of you might be here because you thought you were going to that church. I know Pastor Jeff has said a few people from Redemption Peoria or looking for Redemption Peoria ended up rolling in there. He's like, you could just stay. I was like, yeah, that's fine. Um, so we're going to pray for them. I'm not sure what text they're in this morning, but uh, they have a long, long history. Uh, the name has changed a few different times, but um, if you ever get a chance to meet Pastor Jeff, he is like, we sat down for a couple hours a few weeks ago, and he's just like this real genuine, just in it for the long haul, I'm going to shepherd people until I die type, like just a really loving guy. Um, it, was, it was a blessing, honestly, to just see what God's doing there and what, in him. And so I'm going to pray for their time as well as our time, and then we'll jump into Exodus 15. Um, Father, as we uh, come to you again in prayer corporately, we would ask that um, you would meet us in your word, uh, that the words on this page and on on our phones or however we're reading it, um, they're just words, but spirit, as you uh, enter the room and fill those words, uh, comes alive. And so that's what we need. We need to be encouraged and we also need to be rebuked and edified and moved forward and um, yeah, look deep within us and let that dissect us in that way. Uh, we also pray for uh, Pastor Jeff as he preaches this morning and Horizon Church, God, as they, um, as they continue to just be faithful. have been here way before we ever started meeting at Centennial uh, and a congregation that's been there for a while and has had their ups and downs as well. We pray for them, that you would bless them. We recognize your kingdom is not only at Redemption Peoria, but in moving in really, really cool church bodies all over the state, country, and world. And uh, so we pray a blessing over our brothers and sisters next door. We love them. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, this morning is a really important chapter in our uh, account of Exodus. Uh, if you don't know, the book of Exodus uh, was started like five or six weeks ago, maybe more, six or seven weeks ago, and we're going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we have these big chunks, and the first 14 chapters of these big chunks has been this narrative, this story back and forth between God and Pharaoh, Moses and Pharaoh, and as you've seen, as you and I have seen this account play out, um, we have this hinge chapter in chapter 15 that takes us from that narrative into a kind of a different story. And this chapter isn't just a chapter for chapter's sake to, to swing us into the next story. It's a song. And what, what's really cool about what um, uh, we can do with not just modern technology, but in writing what the church has historically done for a long time is we take sermons that are preached from the pulpit or in our case, a gigantic music stand. Um, and we take these things and we declare, the Catholic church still does this, declare where we stand on an issue. Now, this is helpful for us as elders, leaders, and just as a church, because if one of your friends goes, where does your church stand on tithing? You can go, well, actually, we talked about tithing a month ago, okay? So there are these moments. We're only four years old, but we've had these moments where we can stop and go, even though we're going through books in the Bible, we want to talk about this. This is what's being talked about. And today, we're going to talk about worship in song, okay? Because the information that we get in chapter 15 is nothing new. 
There's not anything new to what we're getting. It's all the same information that we already know if you've been in with us in the book of Exodus, but now it's in song form. Why does God do that? Why does he give us a chapter like that? So for us to talk about worship and song, there's a bunch of prerequisites that we've got to cover, okay? So um, I'm going to do that. We will get to our text. I promise we'll get out of here on time. I promise ish. Uh, but, but I, I, I will say, I will say as we're going to go through this, there are some things that need to be talked about. Okay. And the first thing that needs to be talked about is what worship is and what worship isn't. Okay. So there are two false versions of worship and I'm not saying this to be hellfire and brimstone. I'm just telling you the reality. There are only two. The first version of false worship is the worship that we have within the Mormon tabernacle, the twisted versions of the Jehovah's Witness worship. Even um, Muslims, as they uh, meditate on the Quran and recite the Quran in uh, melodious faction, uh, 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 fashion, they, they, they go about it in this rhythm. These are, these are a false version of worship. This is actually what uh, Isaiah 45, 20 says. Ignorant are those who care about the idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. I'm not trying to be rude if you have that kind of background, but the reality is what the Bible calls what those people group are doing is idolatry. It's false worship. They're serving and worshiping, even in song, a false god. That's one version of false worship. But there's also a second version of false worship, and it's in the church. And it's the man or woman who sings all glory be to Christ, but really all glory be to the Republican Party. It's, it's, it's to the, the person who's in the room who says, Lord, I need you, but the reality is they don't want to fight their sin. It's the person who's here right now and, and knows all the right songs, knows all the right words, but their heart is in it for themselves. Jesus warns us of this type of person when he says, Matthew 15, 8, 9, he says this, the people, this people honor me, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. There is a type of worship that worships the wrong God with the right motives, but there's another type of false worship that worships the right God with the wrong motives, and both are equally idolatrous, and they're wrong. And so that leads us to the question, well then, what is right worship? If we're going to spend a whole Sunday looking at a chapter that is a song, maybe we've talked about the Psalms before, but never the way that we're going to identify worship this morning, what does that look like? How how does it? And the best definition of all time ever given, you'll never guess by who, Jesus says this. You thought I was going to say Spurgeon. Um, He says this in John 4, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is tricky, right? Because um, worship Oh, it's not popping. Oh, Miles is in my head right now. Grab the other mic. Grab the other mic. Okay, I'll grab the other mic. Yes, I love using either this mic because then I can. All right. So here's 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 what I would say. Worship just became this um, this spiritual thing. Now, there's a lot of things about worship in general that um, we could talk about, but I want to talk about just human interaction in general for a second, because there are things in culture or in the, even in humanity at large that we can relate to that are hard to explain. Seinfeld made a living on this, right? This is, the show's not about anything, but they're, they're a close talker. All of us know when, when I say there's a close talker, we know what that means. So on Thursday, I started cleaning the house and I got into my cleaning mode. How many of you guys, raise your hand, and I need you to raise your hand, have gotten to a cleaning mode before? Okay, now keep your hands up. That's weird. Now, now keep your hands up. I need you to think about this for a second. We know what that means. Everybody else is just disgusting, okay? 
but we know what that means. When I say a cleaning mode, it's like suddenly like you're washing the floorboards. Why are you washing the floorboards? Like you've got the bread out, you're washing the outside of the bread. That doesn't make any sense. You get into this mode that you look like my parents. I felt like my parents, 3 a.m. and I'm vacuuming, right? I'm a tweaker at this point. This is, this is like this weird deal that we, I can say cleaning mode and you get it. Like, I don't want to explain it, but something happens within you where you just go, I have to clean the world right now, okay? I don't know why it happens, but we can relate. In the same way, for those of you in the room who aren't believers, it's hard for you to understand when he says you worship in spirit and truth. But those of you who have truly worshiped, go, I get it. I, I I can tell you many experiences I've had in worship, but I don't need to for those of you who've experienced worship before. There's something that happens where you go, God, you're just here. You're just here. You feel like your heart's melting. You feel like you're floating. God, like you just experience God in worship that those who worship in spirit and truth, it's just different. Now this is important because um, this idea brings up something that has to be addressed and it is a battleground right now within the church. And it is ultimately what the purpose of worship is, right? Because we want to make a declaration and, and, and firmly plant our foot and say, and this is what we believe, worship is about God. There is no question, it is about God. We are, fancy terms, soteriologically, we are saved for doxology, right? For the glory of God, with the purposes of missiology, using real fancy terms, right? For the purposes of mission. That's like our idea of theology. We are created beings to worship, and it is for God. But this, but you may not be aware of this, and I'm just going to identify, but a lot of people in the church struggle with groups like Bethel, for example, Okay? And they struggle with groups like with Bethel because what people judge, people, you know, what I'm not even going to get into an argument uh, with the songs about Bethel is because they feel very me-centric. When you sing these songs, it sounds a lot like me. Now, I want to make sure we understand what's happening in worship is a declaration of where we are to God. And I'm going to get into this in a minute. But there's a covertness that has to be addressed of the Bethels of the world. And hear me, I listen to some Bethel. I'm not saying Bethel is all bad. But there are points where we have to know what we're saying and why. And here's the issue. This is no longer covert in our Christian culture anymore. This is outright said. So I'm going to show you a videotape, and it's not for the purposes of humor. It's not for the purposes of putting anyone on blast, though I've talked about this church. It is the largest church in the country. Joel Olstein's church, the largest church in the, uh, church in the country, and his wife, and some of you have seen this video before, and probably most of you, but just so you understand, it's not just covert, this song and this worship is about me. It is now, we can say it from the stage, when I worship, it is about me. So let me show you this, this, uh, uh, this clip real quick, and then I'll come back and we'll talk about it. It's only 30 seconds. <laughs> when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen. Let's open our heart to him today. Father. Okay, so I want to be clear. I'm not, not for the person of us, but that's demonic. It, it, that's not, it makes me nauseous. At first it was like funny. People would add different stuff at the end of it, but you watch that and you go, no, you're not, you're not worshiping for God. Like, what are you talking about right now? This is the largest church in the country. And so we have to understand from the outset, worship is about God. 
It's about God. Now, where she's getting this from and where the Bethels of the world still kind of have an undertone of is worth talking about. And so give me 10 minutes to talk about this because there is something interesting that goes on when we worship God that does turn back on us. So a great example of this, nobody goes on a missions trip and goes, man, I just, I want to go to Rocky Point and build some houses because I just want to feel good about myself. At least as a believer, hopefully you're not saying that, right? I want to go and help build a church or evangelize because I really need to feel better about myself. But inevitably... If you've ever talked to anyone who goes on a mission trip, what happens when they come back? Every time they're, they're, they're equaled out, right? They find themselves in a place where they're going, man, I don't know. I feel like I am so grateful. I have so many things. There's a balance that they found. A byproduct of doing the evangelism, doing the work of a missionary has centered them again. And, and that's a byproduct of it. It's a byproduct of it. And worship, as we worship God, we do have these byproducts. And I think there are five things that we need to understand when we worship, what it does have to do with us so we can have a proper theological understanding and not the nonsense we just watched, okay? So there's five things. I'll stay close to my notes so I can get through them quickly. I just, here, here's a, when we worship, there's five things that I think we need to understand as humans, five things. Number one, we declare where God rightly is and where we rightly are. And that makes us more human again, which brings us joy. So a better way to say it is when you're singing songs, you are restoring the creative order. Creation is crumbling away. There's so much ideologies that are counter to scripture. And so we're going, we know our way. We know our way. This is what we saw in Pharaoh. We know the way. And so what we do is when we worship, we declare, God, you're there. I'm here. You deserve glory. I don't. And what we do in that moment is we restore the creative order. We put the, the, the creation back in its place the right way. And what this does is it makes us human again. We're not trying to be something we're not. We're human. We are here, according to Ecclesiastes 4, here on earth, our words should be few, but God is in heaven. Now, if that's true, what that does is it brings joy. It brings joy. It's true. Let me read some of these verses to you. Uh, in Psalm uh, chapter 9, verse 2, it says this, I will be glad and exalt you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 63, 7. For you have been my help, and then in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. James five thirteen. Is anyone cheerful? If you haven't heard this, listen to this. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. When I was doing a study on this, what I found when it comes to worship is joy and worship or singing are always joined at the hip. It was really hard for me to find verses that that wasn't true. Uh, so sometimes worship um, comes before joy and sometimes joy comes before worship, but they're always like in, and, and what I love about this is um, when we're worshiping, sometimes we're worshiping because we don't know what else to say, know what else to sing. And so we're worshiping our way forward, but there's other times where just gratitude hits our heart and we can't help but sing. It's really awesome. Now, there's more things we, we still got to cover, so let me, let me read this. The second thing we do when we worship is we are obeying. There's actually 50 commands. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. 50 commands in the Bible that say worship isn't an option. You need to sing. You have to sing. Let me read two of them to you. That doesn't sound like, oh, Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. It's Colossians 3.16. We'll come back to that in a second. Ephesians 5.18 and 19. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. These are just one of very many things where, the God, where God commands it. Now, I think, ultimately, God is commanding us to worship in song. I don't think that worship is only in song, but we're talking about that specifically today. Worship in song because it does bring It does reorient who we are and who God is, and that does bring our joy. So he's not just telling us something, do this, and you're going to like, you're going to hate it. He's telling us to do something that is ultimately good for us, okay? And here's here's what I love about this. He's doing it, and it's so, what worship is woven together in these two verses, and it's so nuanced and beautiful, I feel like we missed it in these verses. So for example, when he tells us to worship, he commands us to worship, he's doing it in such a way so that we would memorize his word as well. That's actually the third point. I want you to look at this. Look again at Colossians 3.16. It says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So God wants his word to dwell in you. The first thing that he says, you can see in Colossians 3.16 there, is teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So the first thing is teaching. You can know the word of God by being taught the word. But can you see this? This isn't a new sentence. Another way you can know the word of God or another way that you can let the word of God dwell in you uh, richly is singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I see Jay Mahaney calls worship uh, take-home theology. Because here's, here's what we know. Um, you'll get in your car and you'll say, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And as you're laying your kids down tonight, you'll, you, huh? and you'll know the melody. You know what? You won't remember anything I said, but you'll know the song. It's take home theology. You, you, you need to be reminded as John three thirty would say, you need to decrease and God increase. And because that's true. And because we're weak and we're frail so many times in our life, we recognize we need God. And there are so many times where just knowing scripture carte blanche is difficult to get there. And so you know what helps us get there? Song, worship. It teaches us the word of God. But, but not only that, I want you to look at the other verse in uh, Ephesians that I quoted, Ephesians 18 and 19. Look at this in uh, 19. He says this, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In worship, another thing that we do is we actually build one another up. Can you see that there? So he's telling us that we need to, and, and uh, the beginning of it is, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So you're singing to the Lord from your hearts, but we are addressing one another when we do it. Can you hear that? Tell me you can hear that. The, the testimony that you give when I look at my sister in Christ who just went through a miscarriage and she's still singing, we will feast in the house of Zion. I'm it way better than Carolina does. Right? So, so hear, hear this. This is, this is a testimony. She sings me forward in that moment. Can you see that? Like for me to have a lack of faith and doubt, to see my brothers and sisters, to hear their voice, we address one another in song. I'm not making this up. This is in the scriptures. And lastly, I think it's important when it comes to trials. Um, worship is, um, I think, the key thing in having us understand scripture that gets us through trials. There are moments when all we have are the verses we've memorized and the songs we know. Tom Olson, uh, an article, and I was trying to under- get behind the, uh, the theology of worship of singing. Uh, he brought up this example from the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it's this martyr who was, um, he was in prison for a period of time, 
And his story is unknown. He was in Asia somewhere. And he tells the story how when he was in prison, um, they used their, their handcuffs. This is about 20 years ago. They used their handcuffs as, uh, as like musical instruments. I want to read an expert excerpt from this. I thought it was fascinating. He says, when we were in prison, we sang almost every day because Christ was alive in us. They put chains on our hands and feet. They chained us to add to our grief. Yet we discovered that chains are splendid musical instruments when we clang them together in rhythm. We could sing, and I'll do my best. The quote is hard to understand here. I'll do my best uh, to, to clang. But it's, uh, this is the day, cling, cling. This is the day that the Lord has made. But not like clapping on a mic. Like we're talking chains. <laughs> we're talking like handcuffs together. Their handcuffs have become musical instruments. Amidst the trials, it brought out praise and worship helps get us there. Like in that moment, this is what I know to be true. So these five things, again, let me remind you of them. We reorient who we are, who God is. We obey. When we sing, we dig deep roots into the word. We build one another up and we sing our way through trials. Now, the reason I shared these things on the front end before we got to our chapter, and we'll get done on time here, we're going to go through this whole chapter. Here's what I would say. I want you to see these pockets, because I was going to share them afterwards, but as we go through them, you'll see these five things play out in our chapter, okay? So God has just rescued the Israelites, and here's the declaration. He just parted the Red Sea. They walk through it. Then the sea collapses in on Pharaoh and all of his boys. They, they all die, which we could talk about that. We have talked about that, justice and all that stuff. And then in this moment, the next play is this. Listen to the words, Exodus chapter 15, if you haven't turned there yet, says this, then, then, all of this took place. What's the play? What does God want his people to do? Then, after the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, Right after the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, God's people sing. They sing. Now, there's a few things I want you to notice in here. Notice it says the people of Israel. This isn't just a person story in that it's Moses, right? This is God's story, and it's the story of his people. Together, they sang. Now, also, I want you to notice at the end of that, that section right there, it says sang. Um, that's an important word for us to carry into the song because there's a lot of times we get um, accounts, for example, Paul and Silas in prison in Acts or Jesus with his disciples before he goes to the cross where we're told they sing a song, but we're never given the words. Now, that's not to say that the words aren't important there, but when they are given, it is important. And so when it says sang, it could have just said, Moses and the people of Israel sang chapter 16, but it actually gives us the song the words. And that makes it worth exploring because I think it's doing something here. Here's what we're going to find out. We'll notice that nowhere in this entire song are we given any new information. Nowhere. This is a repeat of what we saw in chapters 13 and 14. That's all it is. But now he gives us the same story, but in song. Why does he do that? Victor P. Hamilton says it like this, and I think it's, it's pretty good. He says, what we actually have in Exodus 14 and 15 are back-to-back accounts of the Exodus from Egypt. The one in Exodus 14 appears as prose. The one in Exodus 15 appears as poetry. The purpose of prose account is narration. The purpose of the poetic account is celebration. Acts 14 tells story. Acts 15 sings the story. You walk and march in chapter 14. You dance in chapter 15. 
Chapter 14 focuses on what God has done. Chapter 15 focuses on the appropriate response to what God has done. You are holding your breath in chapter 14. In chapter 15, you let it out in song. In chapter 14, highlights dry ground. In chapter 15, highlights the fact that there's no dry eye. In chapter 14, a cloud goes ahead of Israel. In chapter 15, Israel's reputation goes ahead of the people. In chapter 14, uh, chapter 14 is about worship. And chapter 15 is about worship. That last line's kind of cheesy, but you get the idea, right? The idea is that it's the same story, but now we have it in poetry. Now we have it in song. And that's important as we go through this. So I want you to look at it, okay? Here's what I want you to do. If you mark in your Bibles or however you do that, or whatever your conviction is on that, you can break up this whole song into three different sections, okay? So if you draw like parallels, verses 1 through 5 talk about God, okay? Verses 6 through 17, they talk to God in this song. And then in verse 18, they go back to talking about God. So they talk about God, to God, about God. Uh, fascinating uh, fact. Some of you are actually pretty familiar with this rhythm already because the most famous Psalm, Psalm 23, is actually in this rhythm. If you go to Psalm 23, you'll see verses 1 through 3 talk about the shepherd. In verse 4 and 5, it talks to the shepherd. And in verse 6, it goes back to talking about the shepherd. So this is a pretty common pattern, right? And I think there's some parallels there. So we're going to break it up into these three big sections, ultimately two big sections. I think verses 1 through uh, 12 are a big section and 13 through 18, but those um, kind of smaller sections are helpful. So it starts with this. Here's the song. This is in song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Two things to notice here. Notice there's no plural. The people of Israel are singing, but notice it's in the singular form. It doesn't mean it's individualized for the sake of being individualized. This is actually, we find this in Deuteronomy 34, and actually a lot in history. Um, when you're singing a song of victory, it's in the, the present singular, right? So they're declaring, this is where we, um, instead of that, this is where I stand. And so this is what you'll see a lot of this. Here's where I am, and this is a declaration about God. Number two, I want you to look at verse three. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. What we have found over and over again is God trying to tell his people, here's who I am, here's who I am, here's who I am. And the people have not once declared back, here's who you are. For the first time ever in song, God's people declare, here's who you are. Now we'll have, talk about God's names um, next week. My charismatic roots will come out there. But we'll talk about all that and play all those, those things together. But this is the first declaration, the Lord is his name. I think that's an important, that's a big deal. Let's go to verse 7. And the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Uh, you know what's interesting about worship, and as we see this section here, is a lot of us love to worship God in hindsight. Meaning it's easy to worship God when you know what God was doing the whole time. The classic example I always give is you're mad at God when you lost the job, but then when you get an even better job, you go, oh God, I see what you were doing. And you're cool with it then. So the question I think could be asked there is to go, what if you knew in the future what you know now before you go through that whole ordeal again? 
And this is what actually is happening. There's a declaration of Pharaoh and his chariots were after us. And this, this is where it gets a, a little money because um, a lot of us think we're going to automatically respond really well in the face of danger. Like if there was an active shooter in this room right now, we all think we would turn into like Rambo and like roll down the road. Like, yeah, I just got it. Like, I'm just going to throat chop him and it's over. We all think we'll respond properly. The problem is you miss the fact that there are certain parts of your body, chemicals that will fire, that will automatically take over. And you'll either run or you'll freeze. It's just been proven. Now, what's interesting about that is this is why Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, Marines train 10, 15, 20 years in every single possible situation so that when that moment comes, they don't freeze. They've already gone through it in their mind. And the reason that's important is, hear me, look at me. That day of death is coming. And I know right now you have a posture of like the big Jesus cape and you think you're going to be awesome, but that day is going to be difficult. I mean, statistically, 100%, one of you as a spouse will die before the other. So, so, so as we look at this and we see this, looking back on this, this song going, we saw this, we saw this. What I, what I um, struggle in seeing something like this in scripture and seeing our own account is the critique of Redemption Peoria a lot from my man Miles is this idea of like, worship is just like so down. I always do with the surfer accent whenever I quote someone, I don't know why. But like, why is worship so down all the time? It feels like it's just so like, like melancholy, right? Here, what you miss, what my man is doing as he pastors us through these songs in worship is reminding us that that day of death is coming and like a Navy SEAL, I'm preparing you for it. You don't believe me. Listen to some of the songs we sing. Listen to this. We sing when this poor and uh, uh, lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. We sing death of death and hell's destruction lend me safe on Canaan's side. As we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secured, and the calm will be all the better for the storms that we endured. We sing songs like this, when On that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light and we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. We remind ourselves that that day of him returning and we going, I didn't live a life worthy of the cause of Christ. On that day when we experience loss and pain, we sing our way there now. We remind ourselves as a people, we remind each other that that day's coming. But hear me, I know Christ is with me. I know Christ is with me. We sing that truth. And what's happening in this section, they're reminding him, remember what that happened. Remember, remember what the people said. Remember that happened because it's going to happen again. And that's actually how the text goes on. It says this. Um, you blew your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the, uh, the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. John Demeter uh, pointed out the fact that the last time this swallowed them up was uh, uh, we saw with Aaron and the staffs when they dropped the staffs, which is an interesting point. And then he's going to turn the corner here in verse 13. It's now going to go, notice, from the singular to the plural in the pronouns. But not only that, it's going to start talking about the future. So you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Verse 14, the peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now, 
Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone uh, tell your people. So I love this because the declaration there, I want you to look at it in verse 14. The peoples have heard. It's kind of miss because everything that happens crazy in this world is recorded on a phone and then we can just throw it on YouTube. And so back then the Moabites would have just seen like, wow, I part of the Red Sea and they're like, that gets a bunch of likes. But what we miss is um, that they're just hearing about this. Like, wait, what happened? The sea parted? And what this does is goes, we shouldn't mess with them. God, throughout the story, has made his name known. We actually see this with Rahab and her people. She, she declares this. This prostitute declares this amongst these people. She goes, no, 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 we're afraid of you. God has made his name known. Keep going. O Lord, pass by to the people, pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. What we get in this idea, um, when we started the book of Exodus, it seemed impossible that Moses would ever be able to beat Pharaoh. Like, that's crazy that Moses would ever be able to beat Pharaoh. And now with hindsight, we look back at 15 chapters and we go, Pharaoh didn't stand a chance. Like, we don't need Al Michaels in the background going, do you believe in miracles? We look at this story, we go, God was just rolling through these people. Like, they didn't stand a chance. And what, what's interesting is verse 18, it makes the same declaration for you and I. Look at it again. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And I hate to go like, I'll sound like cheesy on you, but what I think it's saying in this moment is, when you stand before Pharaoh, the Lord's in your corner. I mean, can you hear that? I comfort my daughter when she's scared, not with you're strong, you'll get through it. But when Jesus is in the corner, when Jesus is in the room with you, I don't know if you know this, but like the boogeyman doesn't stand a chance against Jesus. I hope you agree with that, right? Because the boogeyman's not real. But my point is, my point is simple, right? Like it doesn't matter what comes up. They didn't stand a chance. And so God's declaration is over and again, I'll always have this posture. I'll always have this position. I'll always have this place. I reign forever and ever. Now there's this break where there's this summary in verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters and the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. It's kind of a summary. And it feels like the text stops. And then Miriam, who is related to Aaron, sees, who's also related to Moses, sees Moses and his song and goes, okay, that's pretty cool. Let me sing my own song. But there's a missed thing. So let me explain this. Let's read the text first. Then Marion, the prophetess, which by the way, that's the first time anyone's been called a prophet. And she's called a prophet before Moses. Her guild is very small. There's only four prophetess named in the, the Old Testament. The sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's hard for you to see here, but um, commentators vast differently on where this place is placed. A lot of them argue that it should be placed in the middle because of the way that the structure of the, uh, the whole chapter goes. It should be placed actually before, and, and, and then a lot of them argue that it actually is in the right place. You can actually see this in some of the bottom of your footnotes. I think that's important uh, for a few different reasons. What we get here is at the end of this chapter, it's summing up these 15 chapters. I think that's important because um, there's a fancy term I could make you aware of and I've used before called an inclusio. An inclusio is a way of God telling a story about he starts with one idea and he ends with that same idea and then everything in between is kind of uh, nuancing this out. 
And what I find interesting is in chapter one, the first voice we hear from the Israelites is a woman. And as we fast forward, as this chapter closes for the people of Israel, and we won't hear of Egypt anymore, we get this song now, the last voice we hear is a woman. And what we've seen, though we think it's the story of Moses, seven times it's been the woman who has stepped up to do something. And, and that's important. That's important because then the placement, then we begin to wrestle as we read the words, Hey, Miriam, you're not singing anything. Moses didn't sing you, you. We already sung that part of the verse. Why are you singing that? And it feels confusing because we read it almost chronologically. Moses sang, and then the words say, then Miriam sang, but it's not Moses saying then chronologically Miriam sang. It's Moses saying, then Miriam joined in with Moses's song. What we have is not Moses's song. And then Miriam's song. What we have is this putting together collectively the community, the men and the women are singing together. This is actually what, uh, uh, Victor P. Hamilton says, who, by the way, has been studying Exodus for over 25 years, fluent in Hebrew. So I trust his methodology here. Listen to what he says about this. I suggest that what we have is not a voice and an echo, but a duet with each contributing their part to the whole. There's a concept of unity and mutuality between Moses and Miriam. These songs depict the affairs of the community in that both women and men take essential parts. When the community joins together for the, co- for, for the common songs and the celebration, there's a strong sense of solidarity. Mutual complementarity uh, functions as a key model for the unity and efficiency of the entire community. In simple, it says this, there are ways that for you as women, God has wired you, that you worship God, that the omago day comes out that is not true for men. That's just true. And men, there are ways that you worship as your son watches you worship. That you worship and you lead your family in a way that a woman is not doing. And hear me, it's not better. It's not, it's not, it's not just different for the sake of being different, but it's different for the sake of being equal. That together we sing the same song. Men, women, singles, married, kids, no kids. We need all of our voices, all of our songs, all of our stories. That's what I see there. And so it would be foolish for me to close without pointing out the fact that if this is the greatest act um, of salvation in the Old Testament, that there is a praise break, this stop in this moment that goes, let us sing to God then because of what he has done. It would be foolish for us not to recognize the greatest act of salvation of all time in Jesus Christ and reconciling not just us, but the world back to himself deserves song. It deserves us stopping every single Sunday as we do. And this is why we sing to Jesus to who he is, how he operates, and how he loves us. This is why we continue to lift him up. Because what God did in the Exodus doesn't, it's a shadow, according to Hebrews 10, a shadow of what he does in Jesus Christ. And so we worship. And so the song that, we're going to sing two songs here. Um, The second song we're going to sing is a song that um, I actually quoted earlier. It's We Will Feast in the House of Zion. Uh, The girl's not singing it. Miles is singing it. So we'll see how well he does with that. Um, But here's what I want to say. Here's why this is important. I think this is probably one of the most misunderstood uh, songs that we sing. There's a few that I think we just don't get the rich theology behind. But let me tell you what we're declaring in the song. Zion appears 150 times in the Bible three of which are in the New Testament. And you may not be familiar with what are we doing? We're eating in Zion. Where's Zion? Zion first appears in Samuel. It's the city of God. It's where David dwelled, the city of the king. It's Jerusalem. 
And what happens is as Solomon builds the temple, Zion becomes more nuanced in the Psalms. And it starts to be not just a a geographical location, but rather wherever God's people are, that's where God dwells. And what Hebrews chapter 12 and 1 Peter chapter 2 pick up on is this idea that Jesus has brought his kingdom. And as Kim said in the All of Life interview, wherever we are, the church is, hear me, that's where God is. And so there is a reality, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, that we will look at Jesus face to face one day. We will sit there and hear me. This is going to sound crazy. We're going to sit at a chair, sit on the chair. It's not a spiritual weird chair. It's an actual chair. You'll be able to knock on this chair. You will sit at a table. I don't know if it's made of wood, metal, probably gold, because Revelation, everything says everything's made of gold, right? You'll be sit at this table. Hear me. You're going to sit at a table, look at Jesus, And you're not going to eat imaginary food. You're going to eat real food. Not like you're doing it, Peter, like from Hook. Like this is, this is real food, real. You're going to grab nothing that the Renaissance festival can bring. You're going to eat a real like leg that like the real deal. Okay. Better wine than you've ever had in your life. Like redemptive wine. You're going to sit there and you will feast. You will live forever with Jesus. This is a gift. And though life's hard right now, because of the gift of Jesus Christ, we get to declare one day we will feast in the house of Zion, Jesus' house, Jesus' kingdom. Let me pray for us. We'll move into a time of personal response, and then I'll come up back at the end and walk us through the doxology, which we normally sing. Let me pray. Father, thank you just for your goodness and your grace. Thanks for uh, the gift that uh, Exodus chapter 15 is, this moment where we get to hear your same story, but in um, poetic song version. And there's so much of the Hebrew we, we don't even fully understand. We feel like we read it, it doesn't even rhyme. But we do know the song that you've given us in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That you've given us um, words to sing that uh, apply not just to the days that have happened or the days that we're experiencing now, but also the days to come. So Jesus, we need you. We need you to continue to guide us. We're grateful, uh, fathers, you tell us in Zephaniah 3 that you sing over us. You, being a singer, made us to be singers. And so I pray that we would do that really well, that you would guide us in that. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.